0: Okay, if you would go ahead and uh, be opening your Bibles to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and as we get started tonight, I want to express appreciation for uh, the opportunity to be here. I appreciate the good elders of this congregation for the invitation to to come and be with you tonight. It is a privilege and an honor. As Chuck mentioned, he and I do not get to spend as much time uh, as we'd like together uh, and times like this are very special and have the opportunity to be reacquainted with some individuals I've not seen from time to time. And so it's good to be here tonight. I appreciate uh, so many who work with this congregation and who are part of this congregation. They always tell you, Chuck, that when you start calling names that uh, you're going to get in trouble. But I have known many of you for many years. Uh, I have known Chuck for many, many years when we were both ministers in uh, the Walker County area. There were some projects over about the two or three year period that he was at Sixth Avenue and I was at Midway that we were able to work together. I uh, had the opportunity to work uh, with Kyle last month. We had a Friday night scene that in fact some of you came and attended and uh, we thank you for coming, uh, if you were uh, able to come down and be with us on that occasion. But I've known Kyle and his family for many, many years as well. Uh, didn't get to meet Daryl until tonight, but I knew of his family when I was at Midway. Uh, his father, Steve, was preaching at Cordova. He was away from home at that time. And so uh, I've known a lot about Daryl over the years, uh, even though tonight's the first time that I've met. Uh, Sid Altland could probably tell you stories about me uh, when I was at Faulkner. Uh, Sid was my older brother in a social club that we were both part of there. And uh, walking in the door, I see one person after another after another that I have uh, been acquainted with in the past. And so, so many of you are very special to me and uh, hold a special place in my heart, and it is good to see you tonight. I also express appreciation for the theme. Uh, There are many opportunities that people have to speak on summer series where the theme is not as well thought out as it is in this occasion. I appreciate that study that you have been in. It's all about Him. Uh, Whatever we talk about in the Lord's Church, and whatever concepts and ideas we refer to, we can never give enough attention to Jesus Christ. And I appreciate the theme, and I appreciate having the opportunity to speak on it. And uh, I know that by this time in the summer... Uh, you are almost to the tail end of the series, and so I hope tonight maybe I'll share with you some things maybe that you've heard earlier in the summer, uh, maybe some new things as well, but things that will be encouraging. All right, let's get started tonight with our study. I have been asked to speak about the King on David's throne. The King on David's throne. As we think about how this works into the theme of it's all about him, it is the idea of Jesus being our King and us being part of the kingdom. As we consider this idea, I've been asked tonight to begin our study in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. This is a prophecy that has to do with the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is a prophecy that has to do with Jesus being the king. And and as we progress tonight, I just want to go ahead and tell you the way we will do it. We will first strive to look at the text itself and to understand what was being predicted when God spoke to Nathan on this occasion. And after that, we will continue looking at a few verses in the Old Testament regarding prophecies concerning the kingdom of God. After we do those two things, Lord willing, we will move on to the New Testament and we will ask a few questions about the fulfillment of this prophecy and others from the Old Testament And then finally tonight, we will move to some points of application that I hope will be very helpful to us understanding this image of a king and a kingdom. And so let's get started in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, I'm going to skip down to verse 8 tonight uh, in reading. And the reason for that is for sake of time. But let me just bring you up to speed in where we are. By this time, David has been established and anointed as the king of Israel. He has built himself a house made of cedar, a very expensive wood in that day and time. He is an individual who has the support, not only of God, but of his people. He has led a great military victory against the Philistines a chapter earlier, and under his leadership, the Ark of the Covenant has been brought to the city of Jerusalem. In the first few verses of chapter seven, we find that David seems to be pondering the situation that he finds himself in. Here he is, the entrenched king of Israel. He has a brand new house to live in, and he thinks about God in his presence among his people. For many years, God's presence had been recognized by the Ark of the Covenant, and had been recognized by the appearance of a tabernacle, a temporary place. David's mentality seems to be, if I have this place to live in that is marvelous to behold, Is it right for God to still be dwelling in a tent or in a tabernacle? And so his idea is very noble, it seems, at the onset of the story. I'm going to build a house for God to dwell in, a permanent dwelling. Nathan, the prophet of Israel at this time, hears of this plan that David has. And thinking that God would certainly approve of such a plan, he encouraged David continue to do the plans that he had made in regards to building this particular building. Unfortunately for Nathan and David, beginning in verse 4, God disagreed. Though it seemed to be a good idea to both Nathan and David, God basically asked the question of Nathan that very night, a message that would be intended to be moved on into the hearing of David, have I asked to have a building built for me? The answer to that was no. And so after that, you will notice beginning in verse 8 we read, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Stop right there. God's message here is David, remember your roots, remember where you came from, and acknowledge where you are at today. I have made you the ruler of my people from your humble beginnings. And I have given you and will give you rest from all of your enemies. The nation that you lead, they will have an opportunity now to put down roots in peace in this land. And by the way, David, I'm going to make your name great. When people of the world begin talking about great leaders, they will list you among them. And so here God is telling Nathan and David some things of the past, but also things of the present and a few things about the future. But continue with me. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now isn't that interesting? All of this began with David making God a house. But here God shifts the discussion from anything related to his house to making David a house. God, what are you talking about here? David and Nathan may have asked. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now as we look at this particular part of the prophecy, the things that God says to Nathan that have immediate application in David's life, It is very clear that God says, of your descendants, I am going to raise up a king. And there are several things about that kingdom and about that king that might be said. But as we study through this passage, I would ask, where did your mind wander to as we were reading these things? As we were reading these verses, beginning in verse 12, and we see these ideas, who immediately did you think about? Many people of the world read those verses and they think immediately of Solomon. They think about the immediate king after David. And they begin to view this prophecy from the view of Solomon. For sake of time tonight, I will not cite all of the scriptures. If you want to catch me afterwards, i have them if you would like them. But there are some things that can be identified to Solomon in this text. For one, he was a descendant of David. He fit that criteria. He, he did match up, if you will, with that qualification. Number two, his kingdom was established after David's death. And so that would be in keeping with what is said in verse 12. Verse number 14, when David talks to the children of Israel in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 6... He would say that Solomon was God's son there. And so you might check the block there under verse number 14, the first part. There would be a time, verse 14, that Solomon would wander away from God. You would remember that story in First Kings chapter 11, verses 1 and follow, following, where David would marry many women, and because of them, he would be carried away into idolatry. After that happened in his life, God would raise up adversaries from among his nation and rival nations as well. And so, in that sense, yes, David suffered the discipline of God. But yet, when we look more deeply at the text, there are some things that cannot be applied to Solomon here, that we have to say in our minds, it just does not fit. For instance, go back to verse 12. This king is going to be raised up. This kingdom is going to be begun, if you will, once David is dead and resting with his fathers. Solomon would be born prior to the death of David. And even in the last days of David, you would see David, if you will, politicking with the people, trying to convince the people, if you would, look, my son Solomon will be the rightful heir to the throne once I am dead. This king and this kingdom would arise when David would be dead. Solomon's life does not seem to fit that criteria. Continue on. And think about the next idea. And that is that to God, this king would be a son. And he would be a father. Well, I realize that David interpreted that in this light in regards to Solomon. You see that over in First Chronicles 28 and verse 6. But yet, nowhere else in Scripture do you find that Solomon is mentioned as a son of God. Except in that one passage. And in that passage, David is speaking. Yes, in a similar way to what we would expect, there's going to be discipline meted out for the sin of Solomon, but it does not quite fit the saying here in verse 14. We never see Solomon in Scripture beaten with the rods of men, bearing the stripes of the sons of men. We do not see that ever in Scripture. And so it doesn't quite... Meet that criteria. And then, most important, verse number 15, he doesn't match up, his kingdom does not, with what is said there. The Lord's love would never depart from this king. And the example here is given of Saul. And you remember what happened with King Saul when God's love left Saul. Not only did that occur, but the kingdom was taken away from him and given to another. When we look at Solomon's throne, when we look at his kingdom, you would remember that immediately after his death, when Rehoboam, his son, would come to power, almost immediately, 10 of the 12 tribes would abandon him and began following Jeroboam. There would be the establishment of the divided kingdom, the northern and the southern groups, Israel and Judah. The United Kingdom would be no longer, and certainly great damage had been done to the dynasty of Solomon. But then there would be a time Solomon's throne, that dynasty would come to a conclusion. After Judah had fallen away from God repeatedly, God allowed them, 2 Kings chapter 25, to go into Babylonian captivity and the last heir to Solomon that would sit on the throne of Judah he was taken into bondage on that occasion and that spelled the end of Solomon's kingdom at that point you see this does not match up this passage does not completely with Solomon being a king and it being Solomon's kingdom and so we're left with a question if not Solomon who? And I'm sure already because of the topic, you know the answer to that question. God here was speaking about Jesus. He was speaking about His Son. And it is Jesus who wholly fulfills this particular prophecy. Look with me and ask the questions along with me this evening. Verse number 12. Was He an offspring of David? Yes. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 begins with the genealogy of Jesus. Guess where it begins? The son of David, the son of Abraham. Was he in the lineage of David? Yes, he was. Would he be anointed as king, so to speak? Would his kingdom begin in the days in which David was in the grave? The answer to that is yes. You would remember on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 29, Peter would tell the people listening that day that David the patriarch, he is dead and his tomb is with us to this day. And so Jesus matches the criteria there. Verse 14, would he be called the Son of God? Indeed he would. Luke chapter 1 verse 35. Gabriel, God's messenger or angel sent to Mary to tell her some things regarding this child that she would bear into the world, would say, The child will be holy, the Son of God. Frankly, verse 14 gave me some trouble in the second part, however, because in the ESV it is rendered, When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. And we began thinking, How in the world does that match up with Jesus? How can he fit that criteria? When I looked at the original language, I understood how it fit. You see, in our English translations today, especially the ESV here, when it says, when he commits, that phrase was not in the original Hebrew. The only word that was in the original Hebrew language was iniquity. It is not specifying in the Hebrew language of the text where the iniquity came from. Whether it was the iniquity of the king Or the iniquity of others. When there is iniquity upon this king's shoulders, he shall suffer punishment. He shall be disciplined or he shall be chastened. And when you look over at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, but especially the last part of verse 6, the Lord has laid on him, what? The iniquity of us all. Verses 5 and 6, earlier to that saying, would talk specifically about some of the punishment that Jesus would receive. Would he be beaten with the rods of men? Yes, he would. Would he bear the stripes of the sons of men? Yes, he would. And we especially think about the scourging prior to his crucifixion. And so, when we look at the Hebrew language, the box is checked when it comes to verse 14. Do we ever read in Scripture verse 15 of a time when God would wrench the kingdom away from Jesus and give it to another? Indeed, we do not. And does this kingdom last forever? Indeed, it does. Something that could not be said about Solomon's kingdom about Solomon being a king, but could be said about Jesus Christ. This, brothers and sisters in Christ, friends and neighbors, is a passage where we see God's prophecy speaking of His very Son. He is the king that would sit on the throne of David. He is the one that would establish a kingdom that would last forever. And So here we find very clear evidence of this concept in the Old Testament. But let's transition at this point. Let us look this evening at Old Testament prophecy that would accompany this idea. If you take notes, you might wanna write rather quickly here. David was king roughly around 1000 BC. And that is important because from this time forward, especially in the prophets, you're going to find mention of this idea of a kingdom very regularly. For instance, in Amos chapter 9 and verse 11, we read, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. The word booth there literally means tent or tabernacle. I'm going to raise up the house of David once again. Amos was prophesying to the northern kingdom Israel around 750 B.C., A little later, maybe closer to 700 B.C., not to the northern kingdom Israel, but to the southern kingdom Judah, we would find Isaiah saying, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It is amazing how many of the elements we've seen tonight in 2 Samuel chapter 7 appear in this list. To us a son is given. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to be the one who will do this. And so we see this continual line of the kingdom being spoken of. But it wasn't just during the time in which the children of Israel were free. In Ezekiel chapter 37, this is a passage that we are more familiar with the first part of this chapter, the Valley of Dry Bones. You remember that teaching? Ezekiel is prophesying after the years of captivity have begun. The people who would be reading this and hearing this, they are in captivity already. And he wrote in verse 24 after talking about the fact that one kingdom would be established with one king. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Most of you, knowing the topic tonight, knew that I would end up sooner or later in the book of Daniel. Again, a prophet during the time of exile for the children of Israel. In those days of those kings, chapter 2, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. And so not just while Israel and Judah were free, did you see this idea of the kingdom, but you saw it in the exilic years. The years in which the children of Israel were displaced from their homeland and they were enslaved by other groups of people. Yet it also appears this prophecy does towards the end of their exile. Zechariah would be a contemporary of Ezra. Would go and leave the Medo-Persian Empire along with Ezra and participate in the rebuilding of the Temple of Jerusalem. And we read of that over in the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. And in chapter 9 and verse 9, listen to what he says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What I hope that you will see is this. The idea of a king and a kingdom doesn't just appear once or twice in Old Testament prophecy. It was a regular theme. A common idea. And I want you to think about an Israelite. I want you to think about someone of the seed of Abraham for so many years. Yea, about four or five hundred years worth of prophecy. You have heard there is coming a kingdom with a king. And it's going to be like the throne of David that kingdom will be. And in the minds of the Israelites, they think back to the glory years. We do that sometimes, don't we? We long for the days of old when things were better, when things seemed to be more normal, things seemed to be more comfortable for us. For the children of Israel, those years were the time in which David and Solomon sat on the throne. The times and the years when the divided kingdom would exist and when the children of Israel would be in exile. Yea, even when they came home to Jerusalem and Judea and populated that area again, there would be one group after another after another that would rule over them. The children of Israel would hear this idea about the kingdom. They would meditate upon it and hope would spring within their hearts. There's a saying over in the New Testament. After the death of Jesus, in Mark chapter 15 and verse 43, of a man known as Joseph of Arimathea. You remember the one who went to Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus. What is said about Joseph of Arimathea? He was looking for what? The kingdom of God. One Israelite after another for many years looked at this teaching from the Old Testament and they saw in it hope and expectation. They saw a return to glory. And by the time that the New Testament would come, we would find that the children of Israel would be longing for that king and that kingdom. Under the reign of the Romans, they wanted to return to that day of glory. They wanted to have their freedom once again and to enjoy that status as a nation in the region once more. They had been trod upon for many years and in many ways, many centuries. And this idea of a king and a kingdom would inspire hope and joy among them. It is relatively small by comparison, but I imagine there's a number of folks in here tonight that are college football fans. I'm a college football fan. You have to be if you live in Northport and Tuscaloosa, don't you? I'm awaiting the start of the season next week. I've been anticipating that for several months now. As much as we've been looking forward to a college football season, folks, it does not even begin to touch the hem of the garment to what the children of Israel saw with the hope of a king and a kingdom. This was... The pie in the sky, so to speak. This was what they were looking forward to. And I want you to see what they would have seen. Imagine if they had been privy to the conversation that Gabriel had with Mary in Luke chapter 1 when he would reveal he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Imagine this message circulating among all the children of Israel. The hope, the joy that would be seen there. Imagine living in this time. When all of a sudden there's a man by the name of John in the wilderness of Judea and he comes preaching a message of repentance but just not a message of repentance but repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And imagine as the news began to spread. Look, the kingdom of heaven. We've anticipated this for many years. We've been looking forward to it. It is close. It is near. And then comes Jesus. And he adopts that same message. After coming to John to be baptized by him, we read from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And from here throughout the rest of the gospel accounts, Jesus went places proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. One passage we see it in is Matthew 9:35. He went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Think about what's going on in Israel. What they've been hoping for for so long. It is here. And as Jesus goes from one place to another and proclaims these messages about the kingdom, whether in lecture form like the Sermon on the Mount or in parable form like in Matthew 13, repeatedly on again, off, here, there, and wherever, in many different places, he's talking about the kingdom. And the hope of the Israelites, they're growing. We've been waiting for this for so many years now. Seemingly, it comes to a head in Matthew chapter 21. When Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, you remember what we read a few moments ago from Zechariah 9 and verse 9? There Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem on the back of a coat, the foal of a donkey. And we're told the reason he did that was to fulfill that prophecy. Your king is here, and if you didn't catch it by now, You would have, if you were to listen to what Pilate asked of Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. We have our king. A message of hope. A message of enthusiasm. A message of joy like no other for the children of Israel. But hang on, what about the kingdom? At this point in time, Jesus was a king, but his kingdom hadn't been fully established yet. Mark chapter nine, verse one, Jesus would say truly, "I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The kingdom here is still in the future, but would be established in the lifetime of some of the apostles in Acts chapter one and verse number six. The kingdom is still not established yet, because the disciples asked Jesus, "Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?" And so the kingdom had not yet been established fully. Notice a few verses later, the things that Jesus says. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Notice I've underlined power there. Mark 9, verse 1. There are some of you standing here that will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with what? With power. That phrase power is mentioned here again. It's close. And it's going to come when the Holy Spirit falls upon you. Acts chapter 2. The disciples are in the city of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. They are able to speak in tongues and communicate with everyone present on that occasion. Peter takes the lead among the apostles and he preaches the fullness of the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he calls people to enter that kingdom. And that day about 3,000 folks obey the gospel, and they become part of that kingdom. And Beginning there, we see the kingdom expanding throughout the world. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, Philip goes to Samaria and he preaches or proclaims the kingdom of God to folks. Paul in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 and verse 8 teaches people about the kingdom of God. The last book, or rather the last chapter of the book of Acts finds the apostle Paul in Rome and what is he doing according to verse 31 he's in prison but he is proclaiming the kingdom of the lord colossians 1:13 And following says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And I like Revelation 1, verse 5, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us, made us a kingdom. See, the kingdom was not like the kingdoms of the world. Jesus told Pilate that in John chapter 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. It is not from this world. The kingdom, Jesus would say in Luke chapter 17, 20 and 21, is among you. cannot be observed like other kingdoms of the world. And so in the New Testament, we see the kingdom come. We see Jesus, the king in his kingdom, fully established by Acts chapter 2. Now, let's conclude this evening by a few questions. Why this imagery? What is the significance, going back to the Old Testament, to the idea of a king and a kingdom? We live today in a, in a democratic republic. And fundamentally, there are great differences between a democratic republic and a kingdom. According to those who know such information, there are four things essential to a kingdom. Something, by the way, that the children of Israel back in 2 Samuel 7 and in other places, something they would be intimately familiar with. Kingdoms were commonplace in that day and time. Four things were needed to have a kingdom. Would you guess what they are? Number one, a king. Number two, a territory. Number three, subjects. And then number four, a law or a code by which the will of the king would be communicated to all the subjects. How does that fit into the church and Jesus being the head of the church, the king, if you will, of his kingdom? If you've got your Bibles, I want you to flip over to Matthew chapter 28. And I want to show you something that I think is very significant when we talk about understanding New Testament Christianity. And maybe answer the question God, why did you use this imagery? What was with the king and the kingdom idea? Why choose it? Matthew 28, let's begin in verse number 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Not one time do you see the word king or the word kingdom in this passage. But I will tell you it is there. Why? Because I see a king. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Doesn't that sound like a king? There is a territory mentioned. Go into where? All of the world. There are subjects that are mentioned. Who are those subjects? Those who would hear the message, the good news of the kingdom, and would submit to Jesus Christ and His will by being baptized with the authority, or by the authority of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And number four, if you will, we see a law, don't we? And you teach them all that I have commanded you. A king? Yes. A territory? Yes. Subjects? Yes. And a law? Yes. Do you understand maybe now why God utilized the idea of a king and a kingdom? Let me finish with two questions. My time is gone tonight. There are two questions I ask in conclusion. If Jesus has been made king by God, If his kingdom is the only eternal kingdom that exists on the face of this earth, and if the kingdom of God on this earth will ultimately be translated into the kingdom of heaven in heaven above one day when judgment comes, are you a part of that kingdom? I'm not asking tonight are you a citizen of the United States? I'm not asking where your citizenship lies, physically speaking. I'm asking spiritually where your citizenship lies. If we want to be numbered among the saved, we've got to be in the kingdom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is as simple as that. But I recognize on a Wednesday night that more than likely most of you are in the kingdom. And so the question for you and the question for me is not are we in the kingdom or not, The question is, is Jesus truly my King? I mentioned a few moments ago, there's a difference between a democratic republic and a kingdom. One difference between the two is in a democratic republic, if there is a law in the books that we don't like, what can be done? If we can muster enough support, leverage enough pressure upon politicians and those who govern us, guess what we can have done? That law can be changed and in some cases totally erased. Folks, in a kingdom, the law of the king is supreme. The subjects do not make the law in a kingdom. They are only expected to obey. Frankly, I see many Christians today who look at what God asked them to do and says, I really would like to change that. I would really like to erase that idea. I would really like to do away with that because I want to be the king of my life and not allow Jesus to be the king. And so I ask you two questions tonight. Number one, are you in the kingdom? And number two, does Jesus sit on the throne of your life? And I'm not asking about in theory. I'm asking by way of application. Do people around you know that Jesus is your King. It's all about Him, is it not? It is not about us. Jesus must be our King, and we must be in that kingdom, be pleasing to Him. Would you share with me a word of prayer? Our Father God in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have had tonight to study from your word, and we thank you, Father, for this beautiful image that have been put before us in the pages of Scripture. We are thankful, Father, that long ago you told people about a king and a kingdom. We are so thankful, Father, looking back in history and looking at the life of Jesus and the life of the apostles in the early church. We are so thankful, Father, that we see the reality of that kingdom as it would be established in Acts chapter 2. Father, we would pray that each and every one of us would consider the questions that we have asked tonight in our conclusion. Father, if we are not part of your kingdom, help us to, Father, have the courage to become part. Help us to be willing to submit our lives to you. And, Father, whatever obstacles stand in our way, help us to bravely push those things aside. And, Father, render obedience to you and your Son, Jesus Christ. And help us to do that without delay. But Father, for many of us, help us to honestly ask the question, is Jesus my King? And Father, if we look honestly into our lives and we recognize that we are our King or someone else is besides Jesus, that we would have the courage in our life to repent and to turn from that way and once again allow Jesus to be not just our Savior, but our Lord as well. Father, bless the church here at Hoover. Bless all those, Father, who labor here in any way and capacity. We pray, Father, that your cause will be glorified in this community and, yea, around the world because of the things that they do. And as they strive, Father, to make known the king and the kingdom to those around them, may you bless them in those efforts. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.